Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Brewing. If you are looking for a great non-alcoholic beverage, let me introduce you to Athletic Brewing, who make wonderful tasting craft non-alcoholic beer. As a new father, I have found this stuff particularly great. Uh, It lets me have a beverage or two and unwind at night while keeping me clear-headed and easy to wake up during those odd hours you find yourself awake uh, as a new dad. I am particularly a big fan of Athletic's Run Wild IPA, which is a low in calorie, 70 to be exact, 70 calories, fully fermented and awesome tasting beer. They offer free shipping nationwide, and you can purchase these wonderful beverages at athleticbrewing.com. And if you use our discount code FRIEDEGGFALL20, you will get an additional 20% off your order. That's Fried Egg Fall 20, all one word, capitalize the F-E-F, so Fried Egg Fall 20 for 20% off your order. Today's episode is with Jeff Ogilvie, who of course won the last U.S. Open at Wingfoot, the 2006 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. It was great to talk with Jeff, as it always is, and get insight into Wingfoot and what he expects this week and what he went through in 06. As U.S. Open week is pretty much here, we will be chock full of coverage on our various channels at the Fried Egg. So a couple things to look out for. If you don't already, be sure to subscribe to our free newsletter. It is sent out during major weeks every day, and you'll never miss anything that we do or anything that's going on in the championship. On the podcast, we will have a couple new episodes, including a fried egg story from Garrett that will be centered around the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, a historic U.S. Open at Wingfoot. And then also, subscribe to our YouTube page uh, and check it out. We have a great video of Wingfoot up with Gil Hans and Jeff Ogilvy talking about the greens. And we will also be debuting our second episode of Digging Into Design, um, which will feature Gil Hans talking about the West course at Wingfoot. So that'll be kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a podcast that digging to, into design series, but with video. So when he's talking about features on the golf course, we're going to show you what he's talking about or historical photos that they use during the restoration. We're going to show you, I, I think it's just a better format to talk about a golf course than necessarily a podcast, which we've done a lot of over the years. So without further ado, here is Jeff Ogilvy. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Be, it will be a game. It'll be a make or break for him, actually. I mean, you can tell right now for you, like uh, the way you look at things changes a little bit. You know what I mean? Like he might just not want to be overseas as much. He want might want to be at home a bit more. And I don't know. We'll see. It changes a few guys. Some guys without a conscience keep playing well or better. You know, guys with a conscience, and he is one with a conscience. I don't know. It's fifty-fifty after kids. You know, it's different. Do you believe? Okay. So this is a question I had for you. Will it wins right after baby? Um, mm-hmm. There's been a lot of 
study, like not studies, anecdotal stuff about basketball guys having a baby and then shooting their unconscious shooting for a couple weeks after. Um, do you, do you believe in any kind of post baby bump? Yeah, I would believe in a post baby bump short term that, that it would be potential like that it would be cause you're so high on life, right? It is nothing is better. Like it's the, everything is good, you know, and it's quite a scary thing having a baby. You know what I mean? Like this, all of a sudden you think this thing's going to go, you've never worried about stuff before in your life. And now it's like, you're worried about things going wrong or is this baby going to be all right? I hope everyone's healthy. I hope my wife's all right. And so when it all happens and it's just such a happy moment, I think you can get a bump. But I think long-term it's a challenge for a guy who wants to be around his kids and his family because the tour life is, even when you're at home, you're at the golf course all day and then you go away all the time, you know, and it's not all the time, all the time, like three weeks is three weeks, you know? So guys handle that stuff different both sides of it, I think. And your kids can only travel with you for so long until they have lives. Ours came till the first one went to school really, you know, and then, which is, five years and then yeah they need their lives yeah they need uh their friends and they're set up and it's not fair to them to get dragged all around the world so um it's fun for them a little bit but not every week you know there's some parents there's some guys on tour who like homeschool their kids and they do it pretty much full-time travel with their kids but that's a full commitment too that makes playing the golf different too right yeah and oh. it's gotta be tough on the kids because they don't you know they're friends you know but yeah it's, it, it was funny it's funny especially it's the same the tour life is interesting like that it's um my kids had a bunch of friends for the first five years of my oldest life and four years of the next one their friends were tour friends kids of my peers you know all our friends our world was there and then they start going to school and they move on to their school friends and they don't know any of the other kids anymore that they grew up with the first five years. It's quite an interesting world, the tour world. If every if there's five year runs of like kids coming out and then they disappear and new ones come out, you know, because everyone goes to school and stays at home all of a sudden. It's interesting. The other thing that's different about golfers and kids is that your guys' careers are generally longer and into your life later than a you know a football player. They're done it. 28 29 basketball player very rarely over 33 and you know you guys could play the senior tour all the way till you're 60 you know that's the interesting thing about our careers is i start with all these i mean it was me and scotty and justin rose and immelman and garcia and all in that sort of thing and then luke donald and Poulter and gradually people have kids and like and then later on, other guys have kids and my kids are kind of teenagers now and Scotty's are really young and like, it's just the different phases of things. Like I start bringing kids out on tour and I'm dragging diaper bags, you know, <laughs> through the airport and I'm like doing that sort of nightmare thing, which is great. It's a great period in your life, but it's also crazy. And then I get, fi- I'm finally over that and like, you start going on your own and it's just kind of fun too, right? Um, and, but then you, you've got the tragedy, you're leaving your kids at home. You know, and then all your friends are now carrying the diaper bags around and you're back to doing it solo. It's just funny because the career, like you say, it goes for like 30 years or more. You you live people's lives with them in a way, you know, you, 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 you junior golf when they're single and you're young and you're kind of running around and you all kind of get married and then you all have kids and then the kids and wives are all stay at home and you're back to single again by the time you're late 40s. You know what I mean? Not single, but traveling solo again. You know, it's just a 
the journey you take on tour is not, it's not the same all the time. Like as your life changes, the way the tour works changes, you know, it's kind of fun. It's got to be a cool part when you all get on tour and like everybody's starting to have success. That's got to be like a cool moment when everybody that you grew up playing with and around it around you has, you know, made it. And then it's- oh, it was the best. Yeah, it was the best. I mean, my first year in Europe, we had five people in a house. We had a caddy, a drummer. He was caddying for me. And we had Steve Allen, who was playing in Europe at the time. who's played a lot of PGA Tour and web.com, Corn Ferry. Marcus Wheelhouse and Steve Alka, who still plays up and down from the Corn Ferry. And that. So we had four golfers. And if one of us came home on Sunday night and made 10,000 pounds, so if someone's made five figures, we went out all night. That was it. We were celebrating for a week. If one guy made ten thousand pounds, now it's like ten thousand, fifteen thousand for last place at like the John Deere or something, right? But if someone made ten thousand pounds, we were dining out for three days on how happy we were for our friends, and to see guys fight for their card and have that great week late in the year, or some guy gets his first win, or that journey through as people come up through, it's just a, it's a brilliant period. It's fantastic, yeah. And you hope a couple of guys struggle, but a couple of guys are going well. And like, it's just a great journey golf like that when it goes well. I mean, it's a brutal one when it doesn't, but um, those days are fun. And in a way you you don't get teammates in golf, but you get your guys that you essentially spent your whole life with. Yeah. I mean, I've spent my life with, well, my working life with the same bunch of people generally. Yeah. It's uh, it comes and goes. You're definitely on the same team in a way. There is, you never, you very rarely, like, I think if we played match play, like the tennis, if it was t- tennis head to head, I think the locker room would be a little bit frostier, you know, but because 72 half stroke play is a brutal thing to do anyway. And also there's more than one winner in a stroke play tournament. It's the guy who hasn't made a cut for a while. He finally makes a cut. He's a winner, you know, and there's a few of them every week. There's a guy who hasn't had a top 10 for three years. He has a top 10. He's a winner. The guy who like wins the tournament's a winner. There's, every, there's lots of little winners. Whereas match play, there's a winner and a loser. So the 50% of every day, half the people are headless and they don't like the bird of the guy that just beat them, right? Stroke play is different. If you haven't had a good tournament, you had tw- you've had a run of 20th and you have a 10th, that's a good week. It's like a mini victory. So I think because it's like that, we're all quite happy to, we want everyone else to do well anyway because we realize a good year is only winning once or twice and three times or something is. 95% of the tournaments we play, other people are going to win. So you'd rather your friends win those than everyone else, right? It's such a hard job. Who, If someone asks you for help on tour, everybody helps. Everybody. No one says, nah, I'm not going to tell you that. Because it's just such a hard... It's not going to make the guy beat you. It's just helping him because you've needed help before. You know, it's such a... It's nice like that, golf. I was, you know? Yeah, I was looking at, uh, like, John Rahm after he won BMW. 11 wins and at the time 104 pro starts but that includes some as an amateur his win rate's like 11 percent, and it's astronomical you, you think about it, it's like oh that's not that high but tiger tiger's 22 and then there's nobody else higher than john rob at 11 percent. 11's outrageous i mean one in 10 i mean if you play 30 a year that's three tournaments a year that's pretty good rate but compare it comparative to other sports it's like the numbers are like what Really? 10%? Nah, come on. Yeah, you think so, about baseball, they always make that joke about, oh, if you bat 300, you're a Hall of Famer. In golf, if you... Yeah, 5%, if you, yeah, 
five percent win rate, you're you're one of the all time greats. It's like a measure of like failing the least as opposed to winning the doing the most, right? Baseball hitting is the same. Yeah. If you hit it three out of ten times, you're a Hall of Famer. Like that's kind of nutty, right? If you win two out of every ten tournaments, you're the one of the best golf you're the best golfer of all time. Like it's just crazy. Twenty percent's crazy though, by the way. That's one out of five. Oh my god. Years. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and that includes like the last 10. That is unbelievable. That concludes a few years where you didn't win any. Yeah. You know, it's just outrageous. I didn't have time. I was going to look at what it was from 99 to 09. It would probably be closer to 30%. I think it would uh, yeah, have to be, wouldn't it? I mean, he had a couple of seven, eight, nine win years, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then <laughs> it's like the top 10 rate is insane it's like i think he's 50 over 50 percent of the time he's finishing top 10 <laughs> which is just not even right is it it's just people have no idea when they look at his numbers if they only watch tiger's numbers they just think oh yeah top 10 easy it's not that easy <laughs> that was the thing that i i came out of it as i looked at like ernie and phil their win rates were seven percent and it yeah. was and then you look at like rory dj they're at seven eight percent and obviously you know Phil and Ernie have dropped some because of, you know, the last six years of their career. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, my conclusion was we should be comparing all the next big thing to Phil and Ernie, not to Tiger. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tiger's the outlier. You can't use him. He's, he's not the, you can't use him. Is it? It's the numbers are so distorted from the rest, but Tiger's Tiger, you know, Jack's numbers are pretty nutty too. He won over twenty percent of his tournaments his whole life. Yeah, I think Hogan was thirty percent. Considering he was O for two hundred at the start, it's pretty nuts, isn't it? <laughs> Andy, he had a like a life threatening car crash too in the walk. middle. Yeah, it's uh, nice. the the all time greats, you know, are uh, really great. I'm uh. Interested to hear your thoughts. Two years in, what do you think of the FedEx Cup playoff format? I think it. I was on the pack when we were talking about this, and it was, I guess, the issue that everyone had with it was it was just a bit confusing. Like the whole time, it's always been confusing, right? Yes. Um, it's never been obviously simple to just. You have to kind of read the fine print to work out what's going on, and you still kind of do in a way because it's so different. But the idea is you actually don't. It's actually relatively simple. Whatever the board says, that's 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 the FedEx Cup board. It's actually created a FedEx Cup leaderboard effectively for the last four days. Um, I don't mind it. The right guy won, clearly, right? I yeah. mean, he may not have been the best player for the 12-month season, but he was certainly the best player at the right time. You know, He was without a doubt the best player in the playoffs. Oh, by a mile. I mean... Olympia Fields was just that finish was just beyond outrageous. Um, and the play golf he played there, and the golf he played at Boston was just not that's not human, you know. And then to go and win, I, I know he technically didn't win East Lake, but he won East Lake, um, five in front, finishes it off with Clark. I mean, yeah, he when he when he's there, like Kissner's quote's perfect when he starts when he's feeling it, like. What do you say when feeling it? I just try to make a bit of money to fill up my bank account. Like I ain't catching that guy. That's actually true. You're not catching Dustin when he's feeling it. It's a bit like Rory. Him and Rory feeling it would be interesting, you know, because they both go so crazy low and like dominate fields, you know. Brooks dominates 
tough golf courses and he dominates that down the stretch thing, you know, mm-hmm. but Dustin and Rory, they just, they don't have a governor when they get going. They just, oof, it's fun to watch. To win by 11 with like the world's, I mean, one of the best fields of the year. <laughs> it's just, in, it, I don't care where it is. It's insane. You won by That's six. Insane. Were you just in the zone that week? Kapalua, I won by six. Yeah, I played so well that week. And it's funny, I started six in front. And those leads are really hard on Sunday. It's the only time I ever had any sort of significant lead. And it was really weird. And I played kind of weird and tense and stuff the first eight holes. And I was back to only one in front going up nine. And then I made a great eagle on nine at Kapalua. And then I was away, right? And I ended up winning by six. But winning by 11. And I was just that was the best I ever played probably on a course that really suited me. And there's only 30 guys there. So winning by six at Kapalua is not winning by six. Winning by six somewhere else in a full normal field is more impressive, right? Because you've beat more guys. So 11 guys at Boston on a course that would be hard to separate because everybody finds it relatively easy to make a few birdies, you know? It finds a good player. That's actually wing foot relative to like a Boston. I think they're both... that It's a good comparison. You still find great players have won at Boston. All the way through. If you look at who have won there, and it's always been low, but it's always great players. So it finds players who have every shot, right? And the best player in the currently at the moment just won by 11. So fair play. It's finding the best player. But also Olympia Fields found the best player too, you know, the next week. And that that was so, the thing with Boston too, was I, Harris English was kind of out on his own in second too. It, yeah. He was clearly the second best player that week. It was a bit like the... Uh, well, the last time we saw something like that was Troon, right? With Stenson and Mickelson. They just, mm-hmm. I mean, third played the best tournament ever at Troon. I mean, they're the best, they played the third best open championship ever and they finished third by 15 shots or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, Boston's great. That's a good course. I'm glad. It's it's certainly a long hitter's course. Like, it had a massive advantage to fly the trouble. But um, yeah, Dustin, wow. What a level they're playing at the moment. But like in two weeks' time, that could be J- the JT. Mm-hmm. You know, and two weeks later, it could be Brooks could be coming back. Well, Brooks is a bit hurt, but when he gets fit, he'll be he could be that guy. That's Rory could easily just go bang. You know, it's like we've never had we haven't had it like this for a long time. There's ten potential number ones in the world, you know, and there hasn't been before. Maybe more. I've always thought that winning tournaments is one thing, but blowing out people is a whole different level of golf. Yeah, that's true. It's it just, and I say I only ever did it once, and six again. It's a short, short field, isn't that thing? But I was playing so well at that time, and so for these guys who Tiger and Dustin, that who can routinely like just annihilate fields, the level they're playing at is so far in front of everyone else in the field. It's just crazy, you know. It's amazing that people can get as good as Dustin is, don't you think? Yeah, like it's wow. It's just what <laughs> thirty under a week. I mean, six under a day is not 30 under a week. You're six shots short. If you shoot six under a day, you're six shots behind Dustin. That's, that's nutcase level, you know? So that's, this is my issue with the, uh, with the FedEx Cup final. I make okay. it to Eastlake. I could go out and shoot 65 every day and not win on an extraordinarily tough golf course. I think if you're there, everybody should have an equal shot. Well, this is the big argument, right? No, so I've been, I was in the pack the whole time this happened. The argument is you've got to find the balance between rewarding the season 
Awarding the 25 starts everyone's made and having a playoff. A true playoff would be exactly as you say. You get to East Lake, the winner of East Lake wins it all. You know, that's the true playoff. They don't want to do that because the players are never going to vote for that because the players want to get rewarded for their body of work. So this is a compromise between the body of work, mathematically possible that everyone in the field can win, but they make it difficult for the 30th guy to win and they make it easier for the first guy to win, really. They they want they want it to be a player. I think deep down, if Ponte had the chance that they would go a little more aggressive on that, but the players have to vote for it because it's a player's organisation and players are never going to vote for that, you know, because they don't want the guy to be 125th getting into the first one find his way somehow have a miraculous week, finish 30th and win and win it all. You know, they, they, that's the players hate the idea of that. That's what, dumb. That's what makes the NCAA the tournament. The idea of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes the NCAA tournament the greatest three weeks in, in sports, you know, and, the, and I think that would be brilliant. I think I always thought um, it would be nice to top 30 to get rid of some, to get rid of a part of the field every day. You know, maybe you play the first 36 with the 30 and you get rid of 15 and you've got 15 going out on Saturday, starting at scratch and you get rid of five. And then you all go back to square on Sunday and you've got 10 guys, for $15 million, add in holes, go. Like that would be TV, you know, or eight guys or four guys or something. Can you imagine? Um, but again, that's probably a little aggressive for people. You know what I mean? I don't mind. This is the best version of it so far, I think. I don't. I like the five guys having a chance. You know, there's two schools of thought, and now they have that Wyndham rewards, right? Yeah, so guys, yeah. Which is why they put that in because of to reward the season to kind of soften that for the players. We're going to look after the guy who plays the best for the year. You know. So now that you have that, I think that you got to. I think East Lake's got to be anybody there can win because you've made it. You've made it all the way there. Nobody there has had a bad year. No. And, I mean, nobody gives the best golfer in the world a head start at the Masters every year. Exactly. Everyone has to start at the same score, US Open. It's like, well, and, yeah, I, I, I agree in theory that it would be really great to have it all come down to a few guys on the Sunday. Go, boys. What TV that would be. What entertainment that would be. And what pressure you'd see, guys. I mean, you'd actually see 15 million moves a needle for a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and like down well, the stretch, it, all the stuff. I mean, that we got it a little bit yesterday, but they didn't acknowledge it. But like JT and Xander were clearly, they were, because were, I mean, they're playing for two and a half million dollars. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, this is more than a win on tour. Yeah, it's nuts. It's a strange thing. It's so much money. It's amazing. It's a good thing. Look, I'm, I always liked East Lake. Every version I played of the tour championship, I liked. This one I haven't played in this format, so I'm not sure. But I just like when the guy who was playing best at the time wins it, and this time it happened. So I think last year it happened too, which is like the big thing for this is like Rory was clearly playing the best of anybody last year, and DJ was clearly playing the best of anybody this year, and they both won. So, I mean, that's the big saying, you know. And if you look at the winners since, was it 07 it started? We started it. If you look at the guys who have won it, it's pretty much, with the exception of Bill Haas, who at the time was clearly, I mean, I mean, he's a lovely bloke, but he was like 23rd or something going into that week. Um, with the exception of Bill Haas, who's a great player and worthy of winning anyway, 
it's been VJ, Furick, Tiger, McElroy, Dustin. Like it's been the who's who of the tour. So it's it has identified like the superstars. So the format does find the superstar, but it would be nice if there'd be more Bill Haas stories. I think, yeah, because you know? I think that's what makes it. it Dustin you know. didn't even know. He won't even notice the 15 go in his bank account. You know what I mean? Well, you will. 15 you do. But you know what I mean? Whereas uh, the 27th guy in the field or something, I mean, that's a life changer. You know, he's that's not it. seeing 15 million in career earnings, whereas Dustin's probably got 50 in career earnings, you know? Yeah, I think he's up to like 86 million now with this oh combining all the fedex the bonuses and stuff yeah, yeah that's and uh i mean just on course <laughs> so nuts. i saw scotty scheffler he made two and a half on the course this year then he got two and a half bonus mm-hmm. or something like he made ended up making five million dollars and his best finish in a tournament was third yeah look it's good to be it's good it's a good time to play good yeah you know? <laughs> it's a good time to play well there's i mean they're it seems to this point, it's been recession proof. And I think, to be honest, COVID's actually helped golf, you know, because it's, you're never going to have trouble getting people back to golf tournaments because you can keep people separated, right? Whereas football stadiums, basketball stadiums, that's like just a petri dish for like virus spreading, right? So, I mean, it's golf is, and it's a healthy exercise thing that you can do outdoors and keep yourself safe. I think golf is just going to get bigger. I really do. And yeah. More popular. And, the thing it's too, been what like, golf needed. COVID's been what golf needed. It's, it's what it's, <laughs> it's the it's the dirty secret of the whole thing is that the the pandemic is like the the best grow the game initiative that the golf has uh, ever had. Yeah, the, the the power brokers in golf got together. Yeah, <laughs> this is good for us. Yeah, I want to change gears. We got U.S. Open coming up. Yeah. At a venue you won. Good tournament weeks, I always remember weird little things. Is there a small moment, like a small little thing that you remember vividly from 06 that's not not making a putt on, like, you know, the back nine, but any kind of small thing that whenever you think about it, you remember? My most vivid memory is kind of silly. It's not silly. It's obvious when you think about it, but um, we stayed there. For, we were there for two weeks. We played Westchester the week before, same hotel, the whole thing. And the World Cup was on. It was uh, the World Cup soccer was on. And Australia had got in the World Cup for the first time for I don't, my lifetime anyway. And we, we, we were in the group with Brazil. And on Sunday morning, I was in the fitness trailer, like next to the range. And I late started my warm up because Australia was playing Brazil because it was such a big deal, you know. And we ended up, we played really well. We ended up losing the match. But I remember, my vivid memory is watching Australia play Brazil on Sunday late. It was Saturday or Sunday. I think it was Sunday. And I late started my warm-up because I had to watch the end of the football game. It's kind of silly. So, so Sunday. That was Sunday or Saturday. I'm pretty sure it was Sunday. It was definitely late in the tournament. I'll have to go back and look at the schedule of that tournament. But, yeah. Um <laughs> Because the fitness trailer was a refuge for us on tour because there's a TV in there. And like the fitness trailer back then, it's a bit more popular now. More guys go in it now, but it's it's been a growing thing. It's one of those things in January, everybody's in the fitness trailer, right? But by the time you get to like April or May, like the news resolutions are gone and only the guys who are always in there are in there. And I used to just didn't do much, but I stretched a lot and stuff. So I went in there every morning and you would, the guys who were always in there were always in there and we would just watch TV and stuff in there. It was a great little hangout. And that week in the wing foot, it was right next to the putting green. 
So it's a little refuge away from all the craziness, you know, it's just players and trainers just sitting in there watching TV and stretching and warming up and we're watching the football in there. It was brilliant. Anyway, Ian Poulter will head to toe pink on Sunday. That's one of my big memories too. We, I play, he was my playing partner, second last group. And he was in that Doug Sanders kind of phase of his life where everything that he wore had to be the same color and it's father's day in New York and it's pink hat, pink shirt, pink shoes, pink bag, pink head covers, everything. And I was invisible in my group, right? They didn't even see me because it was like, he just let off this lightning rod of like, just attack me and yell at me because I'm drinking, I'm wearing all pink today, baby pink. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so he actually really looked after me because I, I had an unscathed, like five hours through a New York crowd, you know, because they didn't even notice me because I wasn't wearing pink. It was brilliant. That's yeah. uh, those are the days of IJP design. IJP design, yeah. And he had all, and he, he had all those, he had all the FootJoy classics or the icons. I think they, I guess, the icons of FootJoy. And he had like every custom color that there was. At that time, he had, he had everyone, a lot of guys on tour travel with these club glove things, um, and he traveled with like five of them. And one of them was just full of shoes, like just full of foot. He had like seven pairs of foot joys he wore for the week. Cause they all had to match his stuff. Oh, what a production. How many shoes did you travel with? Two. Usually I would have two, um, like a white or a black or two different. And I would kind of rotate them day to day, but I, I became very, I just wear a pair of shoes out and then I'd get a new pair. I was kind of more that way. Like they're very important shoes. You know, as for a health perspective, you know, they're feeling good and you're not getting blisters and you, know, you, you, you kind of know where you stand, stand <laughs> if you like. Some guys wear new shoes all the time. Oh, I couldn't do that. He did. He, I mean, I, I mean he, he, has, he just gave a whole bunch away, I think, on the Instagram this year, actually. He signed a whole bunch and he raised a lot of money for charity, which is really cool. But he, had, he was like Doug Sanders. He had hundreds of pairs of shoes. I did a spotlight thing on that open during the quarantine and uh, went back and watched it. And I have to say that the fashion across the board, your your outfit was the one that might hold up today out of everybody. But, you know, you had you had the baggy shirts, you had Furek was in the button down short sleeve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny when you go back, right? The, parish, the, the, the amount of material on some of those shirts in the, that period. And it had got better by that point. As you said, mine was like, I mean, Puma was pretty cutting edge at that point and i was actually wearing probably the most conservative thing out of my closet that day which i was glad someone gave me advice when i was really young i said wear a wear something that you like wear your favorite stuff on sunday because if you win you don't want to wear that ridiculous you don't have that ridiculous shirt on the wall of the locker room for the next 50 years right um i can't remember if i made that choice but yeah, I was happy with. I was happy that I won the US Open. And I'm still happy with what I wore that day. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> I don't regret it. That's there's some you go back. Some of those ones in the 70s were amazing. What they used to wear, just amazing. Those big pointy collars and the big white belts. Yeah, I feel like the 80s was actually the best time for golf because the guys. Well, Fashion. yeah, they hadn't wore. They weren't. They weren't all wearing hats at that point. You know, I I like the no hat look if people could pull it off. Yeah, the no hat thing or the big fluffy, like almost the perm outside the visor and stuff, like legendary stuff, yeah. Flaps on the shoes. Remember the flaps on the shoes over the laces? Saddle? Were they called saddles or? No. I don't know. Something to just stop water getting in the laces or something. It was like you had these little kind of tassely things. That's what it was for? (laughs) I think so, yeah. I didn't even know that. That's 
bring those back. I might I might have to get a pair of shoes yeah. for those. Um, so question. So oh six plus six, obviously extraordinarily hard. There's obviously the massacre. It's never played easy. Can Wingfoot be overpowered? No, not how they'll set it up. Not how I. I mean, I read a um an article this morning in um. I think Shackelford posted it. It was in uh, Rochester, West, Westchester Journal News. And apparently the rough is nuts and they've spent all summer like fertilizing the rough and walling the rough and stuff. So I don't believe you can hit enough fairways. You're not going to be able to make birdies just bomb and gouging it, I don't think. Because the greens are such that if you're coming out of the rough, you might be able to hit it on the green with a wedge out of the rough, but you won't be able to get anywhere near the hole. And you'll risk missing in bad spots. So I don't think you can overpower. I think power will be, is a massive advantage in thick rough. Like it's an enormous advantage in thick rough just because you can get it out of it and you can get it closer to the green. But the guy who wins will be, everyone will look back and it'll be like, wow, that guy got up and down a lot. That's the guy who'll win. It'll probably be a long hitter because the, the best golfers are all long hitters anyway. And everyone will talk about, oh, well, it's different now because he hits it long, but nah. It'll be the guy who gets it up and down the best and manages who can make pars after missing fairways. That's kind of what I did best that week when I look back was inside a hundred. I was really, really good. So if I missed a fairway, it wasn't the big stress. I'd lay it up just somewhere sort of short of the green and I just got them up and down all day. And you can play wing foot from short. You can't play wing foot from like past pin high because you're always coming down the hill. Yeah. Even pin high in the wrong spot. Even pin high is too far. Yeah. It's like you have to, but then you, then you have to deal with those false fronts too. You know, so. yeah, there's, there's that aspect too. And there's quite a few greens that are kind of a bit up in the air and you've got to fly it all the way up there too. So it's a good, look, there's enough elevation change to make difference. The, there's 18 crazy greens as you've done that. The, this beautiful and scary. I mean, it's, you can't overpower it. A power is a massive advantage, but it's not, it's not the winning formula there. You're going to have to get it up and down a lot. Like someone like Ram. I mean, Ram's 60 play around the greens out of the rough is otherworldly sometimes. If he brings that sort of short game, um, it's that sort of player, you know. Yeah, the balance of his game is just—he's not—he's great at everything. There's nothing that you look at and say, "Oh, you know, he really needs to work on that." No, the only weakness you would say is the one that most of us have is he gets a little bit spicy from time to time. But um, we all do that, right? And that's just part of it. And he seems to be way better on that front than he was before. Like he seems to actually be progressing and learning and. And he's still because he he's looked like such a big grown up man since he was young. He's still only what 24, 24, 25, I think, you know? yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's got the world at his feet, that kid. And the emotion is good in situations like those. You can, I mean, that being a fiery guy, that's the guy who holds that putt on top of Dustin. That you know, in that playoff, the fiery guy. You know, I just it's it's good. He wants be a putt. Poulter so, would make. Yes, it would be. Wasn't that the most unbelievable finish? That was an unbelievable finish. Um, yeah, he, someone like that would be my pick. I mean, Tiger in his prime, you know, it was textbook Tiger play, a great short, a fill too. It's a great fill place because it's it's it helps to be really good with the long game. Like that's obviously a big advantage, but you've got to be out. You've got to do the second two shots on every hole are really important, mm-hmm. you know. Sorry, they're not the second. Yeah, the third and the fourth shot in every hole. I just thought back to the beginning of this conversation. How how good would Rom be as a tennis player with how fiery he is? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Spanish tennis players, yeah. Be... I mean, 
be interesting because tennis seems to tilt people with that. I mean, people with that headspace, tennis seems to really drive people over the edge and it's a little bit more racket smashing and what a shame about the Joker thing the other day at the US Open. But yeah, it seems, yeah, I, I couldn't play tennis. I would have broken too many rackets. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it would have been crazy. Golf, you'd see so many more broken clubs if golf was uh, was just match play all the time. Absolutely. And the relationships between the players would be awful, you know, because guys would get guys, you'd have a guy's number and you would beat a guy three times in a row and it would just annoy the guy, you know, and there would be, that would be going around everywhere, you know. It would be. I played a match against this kid once, and I, I had a big lead on the back nine. He starts cutting into it, and I didn't give him an 18-inch putt, and he missed it. And he went nuts. I mean, he went n- nuts, awesome. went nuclear on me. He was so mad, and I'm like, you missed it. <laughs> and then the next hole, he did give me like an inch putt. And then at the end of the match, he, he wouldn't shake my hand. <laughs> I love that. That's the best. I love that. That's the best part about match play. I miss – that would be – the good, the good side, the bad side of the match players with the two, the relationships on two wouldn't be as good. But the bad, the good side would be, would be you'd have fun stuff like that going. Yeah. So at Wakefoot, what would you say the five to ten shots? Obviously, it's a U.S. Open. You got to pay attention to every shot. But what, what are the mm-hmm. five to ten or a handful, no number specific that just really grab your attention that you you know you're thinking about maybe ahead in the round. Well, firstly, whether you tee off on one or 10, they are both brutal holes to start on. 10 is a brutal hole to start on. There'll be a two-tee start, I imagine. 10 is, it's probably only, what, a seven-iron maybe new tee. these days? Oh, really? Really? Yeah, they built it. Back towards the yeah, pro shop. Yeah, it's like right next to the pro shop. Okay. So let's say it's a six-iron maybe. It's a small green elevated. If you miss it, you're not getting up and down. It's a stunning hole but what a if you miss it you make boat you miss the green you're probably making bogey first hole that's kind of sucks and the first green is the same i mean you could hit it to 20 feet and four putt you know the story was at 74 that jack putted off the first green i think had a four putt yeah um so that's the kit i think one and ten to start if you start on one of those that's really tough i think the third if i go around the court the third is a brutal hole um billy casper famously laid up four days in a row played it as a par four and got up and then made three played as a two-shot hole and made four for four times that's a key hole i think five and six are key holes although five's a par four this time so five was a par five five for us so that was five and six were birdie holes that was the only little two-hole birdie stretch on the course when we played five and six now it's five is going to be interesting nightmare of a par four i mean wow that's going to be really really hard yeah because that green is, really is insane insane like completely insane. It was a great par five. It was the only hole that was reachable, par five that was reachable because 12 wasn't reachable. Um, well, it was borderline reachable. Um, and it was the one little respite. If you hit the fairway, okay, at least I've, I'm going to be able to get this next to the green and have an up and down for birdie. And the next one was the same because you could you had like a little sand iron in six. And then after that, seven, I mean, it's only like a nine iron, but seven is a brutal little par three. And then eight and nine are two of the hardest par fours in the world back to back. And So you singled out um, those birdie holes. Is it because hitting a good tee shot there just makes a world of difference and gives you like some sort of life as opposed to like, say, the fourth hole where you got to hit a good, two good shots. You know, most holes you got to hit two good shots, but there you have a chance if you hit a really good tee shot at getting one back. 
Yeah, and they're so rare. Birdies and US Opens at places like Wingfoot. I mean, they're single digits for the week kind of birdies, you know. So you want to be under before you're over in a round. You don't want to, if you get three over after five, it's like you just can't see three birdies to get it back to even par. It's just so hard. So when you have, birdie opportunities are almost more pressure in the US Open because you have to make them, you know. So that was a stretch and you very rarely get two in a row because the rest of the course around that was really difficult. So seven's, you could you're get almost more too. pressure on the hole. You can make birdie. Seven, you can because it's a short iron. But seven's one of those typical wing foot holes in that, no, a typical US Open style hole that if you hit a good shot, you can make a birdie. If you hit a bad shot, goodness gracious, you know, that green's quite a long way up in the air. And again, short irons, you feel like you're a chance. So you get maybe a little bit more aggressive, but then you miss it just a little bit and you actually make five all of a sudden on an easy hole. Now you've done. Now you've just made double on a hole where everyone else has made par. It's just, it's the relentlessness of a US Open at a place like Wingfoot. It's just 72 holes of really difficult holes and you're going to make more bogeys than birdies. So every bogey is heavier than a normal bogey because it's so much harder to get it back. You know, you can have to hit fairways. I mean, the long the long par fours, you have to hit fairways because you're not going to get it there in two or you're not going to have any semblance of control coming out of that rough. And the short holes, the shorter holes, like the six, 11, not many of them really. I mean, six, 11, I'm struggling for any more short holes that you really love to hit the fairway too. So you can get that wedge, you know, you want that wedge because you just don't have that many chances to have that wedge. So yeah, what a brilliant place. Yeah. I mean, it's the more you think about the course, I've obviously talked about it a lot recently because of this coming up and people were interested and it's, uh, it's hard to see anything other than a guy who plays really well all week winning, you know, and I know that sounds dumb. It probably happens everywhere, but you're not going to be able to have a, have a weakness in your game that week. You're not going to be able to work around a dodgy driver or a like get around your, your irons aren't that great. You're going to have to do everything well, or you're just going to get completely beaten up. You know, it's like the reverse of the masters finish. I, I remember last mm-hmm. in 2006, the last six holes were six of the eight hardest holes on the golf course. So, it's kind of that reverse where, you know, at Augusta, you always have the guy posting early and you're like, oh, he's in the clubhouse at, at 10, you know? And and then yeah. it's like, well, in 20 minutes, you realize how it just doesn't matter that the guy's at 10. But at Wingfoot, it's like, oh, he's in at eight, plus eight, maybe. He actually has a chance. And the leaders are, the leaders are at four <laughs> over with six to play. He's still got a chance, right? It was like, well, 06... I think out of the last, it was the last five or six groups. So 10 or 12 guys, I was the only guy to par the last four holes out of the, out of the 12 best players of the tournament, which is crazy. And I had to get up and I had to chip in and get up and down twice for that. I got up and down on 16 from 50 yards. I chipped in on 17 for par and I got up and down from the front of 18. So what a finish. And if you go before that, 13 is a strong par three. Yeah probably five iron at the moment, six iron, maybe four iron could be probably. Yeah, I mean, it's um, long. Over 200. It's over 200. And 14's a strong, strong par four. 15's a strong par four. 16's, I think, the longest par four in the mm-hmm. course. It was in 06. It was 500 in 06. Um, 17's a really awkward little hole with a gnarly little green. 
and 18 is 18. I mean, Mr. Fairway and you're not making par. So, uh, yeah, what a finish. 11 and 12, they're a chance. 10's a tricky hole, but if you hit the if, 10, 11, 12, you hit a good shot on 10, 10, 11, 12, 12 is a par five. It's a long one, but these guys are long, right? Um, but after that, 13 through 18, what you say? Was it six of the last, the hardest eight holes in the, the course? Last, was yeah. 13 through the 18. Last six. Yeah. The last six holes were six of the eight hardest for scoring average. It's not, yeah, not surprising. Was that just Sunday or was the that whole the whole week? week? Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's amazing when you think about how hard some of the other holes are. Um, yeah, it's like that, though. It's that sort of course. So, again, starting on 10 on Thursday morning, that's a tough draw. You know, if you're one over after three and then you've got those holes coming, it's like, wow. It's interesting how each nine has gives you almost pockets of scoring where mm-hmm. you've got now without five, it's it's six, seven, really, and then mm-hmm. nine, but then yeah. on the back it's it's eleven, twelve, and that's it. It's eleven, twelve, and then you're done. Yeah. That's your scoring done. I mean massive drives the way Dustin or Brooks or Rory or these guys can hit drivers. They can hit wedges into some of these holes that I can't see wedges into, right? But there's not many, you know. There's, there's you're gonna have. There's not gonna be. You can't just wall, wail away with driver and the Bryson approach and see if it works out. It's just, it's too long a week to have that many shots out of rough. You know, you just, you you just can't go all seven, eight, nine times around being the rough. And I think if you're trying to hit it three thirty, three forty on every hole, you're gonna hit it through some corners and. It's going to be fair, firm fairways. It's going to be tough to hit that many fairways. And that US Open rough, I guess, from the evidence that I've seen actually this morning on what the rough's going to be like, you're just not going to be able to play around with the rough too much, I don't think. So they'll start backing off the tee a little bit, you know, and then they'll have a bit more long. So it might be interesting that way. We'll see what it'll do to the modern approach. But uh, I think you're just not going to be able to take liberties with the rough like you can sometimes. The other aspect of it is the September date. I think they're going to be able to push the course a little bit more than you would in June. You know, this is the best time agronomically for golf courses in in New York. I would have thought by a long way, and hopefully some trees have started turning maybe a little bit. It's probably not cool enough yet, but um, it's, uh, yeah. The fall is always in the Midwest, New England area. The fall is the best time to play golf, you know, by a long way. Yeah, it's, it's the end of summer, so you've had great growth and you've kind of, it's firm and you haven't had too much rain and it's cool nights and it's not light all, it's not light till nine o'clock at night. So you can stress the great, they get the cool kind of darkness for longer. Yeah, they could be really fast. It'll be probably in better shape than it was last time just because of that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe because of any other factors, but having it at the end of summer rather than the start of summer has got to be an advantage for agronomically, agronomically, what do you think? And they've had less play. They had less play this year, I imagine, right? Just naturally because of COVID probably too. Uh, maybe more. Everyone's had record play. I wouldn't imagine that. Would, don't, don't come to yeah. Melbourne. Don't come to Melbourne. We're not allowed to play golf in Melbourne. It's, uh, we at least have golf. <laughs> We've yeah. got a lot more cases though. So um, Something you said about hitting it in, uh, in the rough. You can't hit it in the rough all day. Would you say that it's a lot of the U S open is about stress management, almost keeping the stress off you for long periods of time. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, it's a long week if you've, 
even if you're making them, a six footer for par, even if it goes in, it, it's anxiety inducing before you hit it, right? You've got this, oh, I've got to make this putt for par, I've got to make this putt, I've got to make this putt. Whereas a tap in, it's like, oh, you just go tap it in. There's no mental energy drawn from just a tap in. But if you've got six, you could shoot even par, but every one of those par pars was a six foot putt. You're going to be pretty tired at the end of that day. But you should even par if you've just putted up from 30 feet and tapped it in every hole, you're going to think that was kind of easy. So there's ways and there's ways. And if you're in the rough, you're just going to have long par putts all week and it's just going to wear you out. It's not that you can't do it. It just mentally wears you out. That guy who plays the front nine, he hits eight greens. The only one he missed was on the front edge. He's tapped it in for par for the front nine. He's cruising around like hasn't used any energy yet. The other guy who shot even par, he's held six, he's held six eight footers and two five footers, all left to riders and downhillers. He's on the same score after nine holes, but he's used all his energy up. So that's that that's like you said, it's the stress avoidance. You know, you don't want you just don't want those. You get in situations at a place like Wingfoot where you've missed the green. It's like, right, I know I can't make par. How do I not make double? You know, and those kind of management situations where you've got to hit your bunker to forty bunker shot to forty feet just because it's going to be somewhere you could two putt from. You know, those situations wear you out really yeah. quick. They grind you then down. You got a two putt. You got <laughs> they a two grind putt you down. Forty feet. Yeah, and if you're hitting in the rough all the time, you're gonna ha- you're just gonna have situations like that because you just even if you can move it out of the rough, which it doesn't sound like you're gonna be able to move it too far. Even if you can, you can't move it with any control. You know, you, it's just you, you're kind of trying to get it to an area where maybe you can get it up and down from. You're not like trying to hit it close. So it's just yeah, it's stress stress management is a good way to it's energy preservation. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it's not under your control. I mean, we all aim it in the right spot and it goes there or it doesn't, you know, like, so like we tried it at the rough. I mean, um, but you could certainly, there'll be an experience. It's a sort of course. It's got some new, quite a lot of depth and nuance to it. Cause it's one of those, it hasn't really been messed with since the old days. Right. So it's an old nuancey kind of course. You would think experience does well there's a there's certainly an added advantage to experience there than say there would be over all right olympia fields i don't don't know i don't pick on olympia fields it's great but wingfoot's just got a little bit extra you know and i think the as i said tiger in his prime would be primo for wingfoot you know because he would just love the challenge of the under the whole thing and the plotting it around and playing it smart and hitting irons off a lot of tees and stuff. I think uh, the guy who embraces that challenge of how do I best manage this as opposed to just plays, just tries to play a good version of normal tour golf. I think the guy who embraces it has a chance to do really well because it's that sort of How would you spend your time leading up to the tournament? Would you just go about your regular practice round, nine, nine? It seems like most guys just play nine nowadays. Or would you do spend more time doing different things out there versus a regular tour stop? Well, look, I love the U.S. Open, clearly. But they ruined Monday to Wednesday in the U.S. Open when they started having tee times in practice rounds. And they don't let us tee off without tee times. And it's a two-tee tee time. So they have a morning wave and an afternoon wave. Because normally on tour, like pros, 30 times a year, we turn up and we make Tuesdays work. There's no tee sheets. We just get there and it just works. Some guys want to play early. You just kind of find your way to the tee and there's a couple of busy moments, but you pair off with your guys and you play. It's, it actually works really fine. The USGA don't trust us to handle that situation. <laughs> so 
So we have to put our tea time and you're booking them like, so they're four balls from seven o'clock in the morning off one and 10 from seven till nine. And then there's four balls from like 12 till two. Well, four balls in every group, it's just a six hour round. It's a three hour, nine holes. There's 50 autographs off the back of every green, which is kind of fun, but everybody's hitting 50 chips on every hole and everyone's taking 25 minutes to play every hole, every group. So after three hours of that, no one's going to go, I'll do that again. Can I go to the back nine like that, please? Like, so that's why that's happened. Everyone would play 18 holes if it was 18 holes. Like it was, everyone plays 18 at the masters because you play it in four hours and it's great fun. You know, um, you practice rounds at the U S open are miserable Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday. It's great. But that's partly why everyone plays nine. Cause it takes six hours to play 18 holes. I always found the best practice round to play one really early, like 18 holes really early. First group, the seven o'clock one is not too bad. And then last, I liked Wednesday at two o'clock actually, because every, quite often everyone's so pumped and so excited. Monday morning is the busiest yeah. time at the USA because everyone's so jacked to be there, right? By the Wednesday afternoon, everyone's gone. They're all tired. They've all been hitting balls and practicing and hit a million chip shots. Wednesday afternoon's a ghost town. So that was always my uh, go for thing. But yeah, everyone does just play nine holes. But what I would focus on in the lead up, knowing what I know from 2006, I would have spent the last six months on the chipping green. You know, working on 60s, working on uh, whenever I could find some heavy rough to chip out of. Just get really, really good around the greens because that's what I was doing well at the time. I didn't do that on purpose in 06. It just happened that I was working on my short game a lot. And it happened to be the thing that I think was the separator for me at Wingfoot. So I would do that again only because of what happened last time. But in the week leading up, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would, I, you couldn't hit enough shots from inside 50, 80 yards, you know, around the greens, out of the rough and just really get a f- good feel for getting it up and down somehow and get a feel around the greens. The hitting it, you can work out wherever. You, you can just look at the book and work out kind of where to hit it sometimes. But the, the short game stuff, that really is a form thing. You know, it comes and goes. And if you get really sharp and you have that feel, so I'd be doing a lot of that, I think. Would you say that there's any venue? Do you feel like there's a stylistic? It could look completely different, but from the way the course plays, is there any comp within, whether it's US Open venues or tour stops, anything that is somewhat similar to Wingfoot in the way you have to play? I think, I think like Wingfoot, Oakmont, Shinnecock, Pinehurst, uh, maybe even Pebble, uh, like prototypical US Open venues, but are all really different. You know, um, Wingfoot and Oakmont are very similar in that it's all about the greens, you know, really old school greens, crazy greens that you couldn't build them today. They like they wouldn't give you another job if you built those greens again today, but yet everybody loves them, you know. Um, Pinehurst the same. You couldn't build Pinehurst number two now. There's no way, you know. So I think they're yeah if they've just got such a great kind of base structure and like the way they were built to begin with to just easily set them up for us opens i think Wingfoot is i mean i know it's there and it's rose colored glasses because i won there and all that but Wingfoot's about as perfect for a us open tournament a big tournament as any venue gets anywhere like they're really it's a world-class course that's always going to be hard enough you could set it up easier than they do you know um, but it would still never be 
very easy because the greens are so challenging. It's 36 holes. So you've got that scale, right? You've got that big clubhouse. You've got, you can use the other course for the range. You know, you've just got scale to put all the stuff. And it's just, it's not a, it's a course that's somewhat intimate, a big course, but it's all kind of close together. So the crowd can kind of see everything really easily. And it's close to the best US Open venue, actually, saying that. I don't want to say that just because they're coming up to it, but can you think of a better one? I, I mean, Oakmont's a great one. I was, too. Oakmont's a great it's, one. Too, it's but. easy to get to, too, for a lot of different areas. You know, it's not, if you're, if Shinnecock's awesome. But it's a pain in the ass for everybody to get to because unless you're staying on the other side of the island, the traffic's just insane, you know? Oh, Shinnecock's a nightmare to get to, yeah. It's brutal to get to, yeah, because there's only one way in, yeah. I would, I, that's why I was, I, my next question was going to be where does it fit in? I think if we went with a tier, you know, it'd be like picking out the best golfer in the world right now. It depends on what week it is or best golf course of the world. Mm-hmm. It is. What's the, what's the best golf course in the world? What day of the week is it? You know, what am I in the mood for? Yeah. Um, I think with this one, it, I think it's in that first tier of us open. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those courses that I just mentioned, you got Oakmont, Wingfoot, Shinnecock, Pinehurst, probably Pebble, I mean, Pebble, when we play it in the Pro-Am, is Pebble's brilliant, and it, but it's not a US Open. But it's a very set-upable course because it's on side slopes and small greens. And as soon as it gets firm, I think Pebble's a great US Open venue. They're tier mm-hmm. one. I might have missed a couple. They're certainly, yeah, you can't put anything in front of Wingfoot as a tournament venue, can you? With everything it's got going for it, it's certainly in the top tier. I mean, Pinehurst is a brilliant week. Oakmont's a brilliant week. But Wingfoot's got 20 million people living within an hour and a half, probably. Yeah. Um, as you say, easy to get to all the other advantages. Yeah. Top, top, top tier. And you shouldn't always go to top tier things. Cause I think some of the other U S opens are really, really interesting. I mean, I thought chambers was really interesting. Unlucky that the greens they were, but it was a really interesting tournament. I really enjoyed that one. Did um, you ever play the, you never played the country club. I didn't play the country club. No, I mean, I, I've been just people have been telling me that that's going to be just a bloodbath in a couple of years. It, I don't understand that mentality. It, it annoyed me a little bit reading the articles at Wingfoot this morning about this is going to be a great Wingfoot Open that we all remember. Hopefully, it's eight over par. It's like I don't mind if it's eight over. I mean, I was, I'm glowingly talking about how good Oakmont and Wingfoot are, and we always shoot way over par at those two courses. But if the intent is to get people to shoot eight over par, I don't like it. It's you know? kind of like <laughs> if it happens. Like a, if it happens, that's fine. Like Olympia, but if Fields. the intent is, I don't understand it. Like that was per. It, it was. It just naturally, like the the weather allowed it to be super firm, and the golf. It's a U.S. Open golf course. They've had U.S. Opens at it, mm-hmm. and the scores were you know what two guys ended up under par, three guys ended up under par, and Wingfoot's obviously much more difficult golf course than than Olympia Fields is. Yeah. So if it naturally, I mean weather yeah. dependent, yeah. But um, you got a bit of wind at Olympia Fields, right? Uh, yeah, a, a bit little bit the first day, but. Enough, yeah. It wasn't crazy windy, but it, it just hadn't rained for three weeks, so it was firm. I just like a setup, and I think Wingfoot, see, the what the great, great, great courses do is that even if the setup goes over the top, and they've absolutely gone over the top at setups, I mean, Shinnok a couple of years ago was over the top. I don't care what anybody says, it was. Um, if the great courses seem to be able to weather that and still have great tournaments and great people win, you know, that's what brings a top tier course. Like Wingfoot at five over or five under, great players would win. You know, outside of me, 
Oh, um, come on. But um, You're, you're nah, a top 10 player in the world. <laughs> I was being silly. But like, um, there's other courses that might not do. Great courses, however you set them up, create great championships. You know, when 06 was a great championship. I mean, with an hour to play, what a last hour of a tournament, right? Shinnecock always provides a great finish. It was a brilliant finish there a couple of years ago. You know, like Pinehurst was dominated. You know, Pebble is usually dominated too. Usually someone separates. It's interesting. But like good players, it doesn't matter how you set up Wingfoot, great players will win and it'll be a great tournament. That's Halo and the massacre was apparently just absolutely the carnage. But he was one of the best US Open players of all time and he stood up, you know. Zeller and Norman, I mean, they were both at the top of the world at that time. It's like the great courses create great champions. Yeah. However you set them up. And there, that that's the top tier. The top tier are the ones that do that continuously, repeatedly in different situations. The best players always come out on top. That's at least from a competitive measuring stick. That's a good measure of a good course, you know. I mean, yeah. 06, you had Harrington, you had VJ, you had Phil, Monty. I mean, the Fur- Furick. Yeah, Furick. He was he was the one I think that kind of doesn't get enough of wow. He, you know, everybody obviously always talks about Phil and Monty a little bit, but Furick down the stretch, he gave, a, he gave a, he had probably is kicking himself as much as those other guys are. Every one of those guys you mentioned had as much chance as me yeah. or more with four holes, four or five holes to play. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that was the who's who of the time in 06. It provided the top 10 was like eight guys who were always up there in majors. You know, it was. That's that's what happened in 06. It was those guys. Tiger was the only exception, but his father, yeah. Earl had just died. His father had just died after the Masters and he hadn't really played for six weeks and he righted the ship and he won the next two majors after that. So he worked it out. But Furyk's um, US Open. Yeah, the only exception there was Tiger not being up Furyk's there. US Open record during that like five years is bananas. Oh, really? Just... So he won Olympia Fields. <laughs> he was what, top five yeah, every year? Yeah, I think he, was, he finished second the year before that. Um he was in he was in the mix at the Oakmont the next year when Cabrera won. I oh, think he finished he? second in when at Oakmont to Cabrera. He should have won that one. That's a big one for him because he's a Pittsburgh yeah. guy, right? Isn't he a Pittsburgh? And everybody yeah. thought he was going to win, and then I think he made bogey or something on the last hole. I can't remember exactly what happened, but uh, I just remember Cabrera pumping, hitting that last fairway at Oakmont with driving at like three twenty-five. Yeah, Cabrera was just nuts at the time. <laughs> Cabrera is one of the great golf stories. Awesome. Do you play with him much? It's funny. So naturally gifted. I play with him a ton. Yeah. We were on some President's Cup teams and stuff. He's a he's a legend. So talented. Almost worked too hard. He was like the... There's this thing in golf about hard work, right? And like this guilt. And because he came from really poor upbringing in Argentina. and um, He just worked really he was so naturally gifted he was probably one of the ones who should have just turned up like fred couples to the golf course every day played golf had a bit of fun and gone home and had a couple of beers or something you know what i mean but he actually went home and hit balls all day every day and actually kind of wore himself out by grinding too hard i think Does yeah that makes sense no, totally makes sense super naturally talented all those rgs are complete flushes you know legend bloke two majors i mean what a career cabrera he, he was as good as he nearly won the one that adam won he was in the playoff with scotty at the masters i mean he's the real deal cabrera Flusher. You mentioned couples. You channeled a little Freddie couples before your Wingfoot win with watching watching sports instead of, you know, getting into your warm up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's I mean 
like at the time you just think why would you be doing something like that but like when you look back it's like that's actually the important stuff is to is to somewhat somehow take a little bit of the seriousness out of it you know it's not life or death a golf tournament you know 155 guys go away every time not winning is one guy who does and 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 you lose nearly every tournament you ever play and you you're fine you're still breathing and you get to play next week you know it's not the end of the world so i think guys like freddie and dustin just have the natural gift at taking a level of seriousness out of it that some of us can't you know and it just gives them an advantage in situations like that i think yeah <laughs> freddie gets bagged up but that back injury derailed him i mean he was he was getting right to the, he was winning everything and then he hurt the back and everything hey so let's uh let's wrap it up here but I want. I need to get your your winning predictions, your score, and uh, and winner. Well, about a week ago, I predicted to somebody even par and Dustin Johnson. But after reading a little bit, I think it'll be over par, and I'll go with John Rahm because I think his short game. Dustin will have a little bit of a. It's going to be hard to back up what he's just done. That's, I mean? he's almost he too a, hot. He probably had a few. He's probably had a few beers the last couple of days. I would have thought, maybe. Not that he won't be trying his best, but mentally, emotionally, there'll be a, a period where it'll be hard to keep playing how he's playing. Ram will be a little bit hungry. You know, he's just won a tournament around a course, the most recent tournament around a course that'll be US Open like. Those two are up the top. And he's just got that, he's got the flair around the greens, Ram, you know. And I'll say he'll win it three over. It's a, it's a strange setup with the major with it right after the playoffs where all these guys have played three weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. Where it's, I, I was talking to a buddy of mine this morning uh, who's on web, and he was talking about how he's played, you know, he, four straight weeks. And, you know, he was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and stay away from the golf course a little bit. He's like, because, you know, I need to stay away a little. And I'm like, why? why? He's like, well, I played four straight weeks. There's been a lot of golf, but... I'm just tired, you know? Yeah. And it just wears you out leading to like leading like those guys do every week. That's just a tiring thing to do. Yeah. In the mix, you know? it's different. And he's played well recently. He's like in, in a lot of great golf, which takes a lot out of me. Yeah, absolutely. And Rory, you'd think is, it would be, yes, there's a bump when people have babies, but still, well, I mean, I don't know. That's a hard one. I, I kind of um, wanted to take Rory with, Everything like I feel like this is kind of. I mean, it's crazy. He hasn't won a major since 2014. It's just nuts. It's not. I can't understand that. Yeah. It's and nuts. I feel like this could be like the the shift, like the just the perception that change that he needs because no. something's going on. Up the, that's the. Uh, it's the only explanation I can see is that the majors have gotten in his head a little bit. But that's. But Rom, it's so hard not to pick Rom. Well, he has. He ticks every box. And as I said, like it's a similar game. Him and Dustin, they hit it miles, they hit it straight. They're great with everything. Ram has just that flair around the greens, you know. Those of those guys right at the top, they've all got great short games. I'm not, I mean, but Ram has that Spanish flair, you know, that extra little bit around the greens that might be a difference maker in that sort of court on that sort of course, you know. But look, Webb Simpson could win. Yeah, it's true. You know, um, Patrick Cantlay could it, win. It, it, Patrick Cantlay could win. I mean, Morikawa could win without him thinking about it, you know. So Adam Scott could um, win. Or you, Scotty could win. 
he was there in 06. I mean, I wonder if anyone, too, how many of the guys were there in 06. Dustin wouldn't have been there yet. Um, you know who's a sneaky, great, he might have been great band, pitcher but... of the golf ball? Who never gets any credit yeah. for it? Tony Finau. Yeah. Like, great mm-hmm. short game. Absolutely. But not a great putter. He, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be that guy who's, I was putting really well at the time and putting on US Opens, especially late Thursdays and Fridays when the full field's been over the greens, your late tee time is, they, they're fast and a bit ropey because of the size of the field. Usually it's the great putters who putt well. It's like the guys who putt well at Riviera are the sort of guys who will putt well. Guys who putt well in California will putt well at Wingfoot. You know, at some slopey kind of fast greens. That would be my. That's a DJ. That's a DJ. Um, I think a DJ. Yeah, it's a, it's it is it's because that new, all of a sudden the West Coast is a unique putting experience, but Westchester County up there is a similar green. There's a bit of a power issue, similar grassing as the California greens, and they can get fast and slopey and smooth in the morning and bumpy in the afternoon. That is usually only the elite putters you know, on stuff like that, or that, that free putter, the guy doesn't stress about putting, you know, which would be a Dustin. He's not an elite putter, but he's certainly a non-stress putter, you know, Snedeker, he used to make everything in California. Morikawa, he's just one there. I'm not, they're not the same, but there's a similarity to putting out at Riviera and Wingfoot a surface of the green wise and speed wise. Man, this would be so good for Brooks if he was. Yeah. It's Brooks. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, Brooks, of course, as I've ever seen two years ago, you know, if he was healthy and yeah, absolutely. All right. Excited for this week. Any, anything you're particularly excited to watch? I'm just excited to watch the whole thing. I'm really, uh, the whole thing, really, I'm going to soak it up. It's, it'll be, uh, nostalgic a little bit to watch it. You know what I mean? Just interested to see it. It's unfold. a bummer. Bummer you're not playing. Yeah, it's a shame. You know? When, when we were going back at, up until March and the COVID thing, I was certainly going to be there playing if I could, but be there either way and I can't. So that's a shame, but uh, it'll be fun to watch. Since it's been such a crazy year that golf is, as I said at the start, all of us, they started, when they started cancelling the Masters, counting all these films, I was like, oh my God, it's like Armageddon for like tour golf. But six months later, it's like tour golf, golf is actually doing it better than every other sport. And it's, powering and we've got tournaments and FedEx cups and we're having all these majors and it's like wow like just excited that it's happening you know I just want to watch because my the big memories of Wingfoot for me in that tournament was the last hour because of how the last hour was I'm looking forward to seeing the last hour again you know like have you ever rewatched? if we can actually get five or six guys with a chance with an hour to play oh it's going to be fun to watch you know have you ever rewatched that? Is, is that something you've done? Not in its an or... entire. I haven't watched it in its, it's an entirety, like the five-hour coverage or whatever. But I've watched the last few holes a couple of times, and I've been to a bunch of dinners and things where they'll show footage from the thing, like as part of the talk or something. Um, but I've never sat down and watched the whole thing start to finish. I should, but see, I'm on the coverage early, um, up to about the first five or six, and then Phil kind of takes over the coverage for most of it, you know, and I kind of pop up there towards the end because there's so many guys in contention and it was Phil's kind of coronation week, Tommy Roy, you know, I mean, they pick the guy who's going to get the most ratings. It's perfect, right? Um, so it's not like uh, watching me play 17, 18 holes. You probably saw me play. You missed a punch of me in the middle, you know, I mean, an odd putt here or the odd shot here. So uh, They put the final two hours up on YouTube uh-huh. and uh, that's what 
we watched when we did this spotlight thing, and uh, it was uh, it the coverage opens with uh, Kenny Fair, yeah, and he's 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 just really mad. That's the <laughs> it's just the trivia question at the trivia night. Who played with Phil in the last round of the O six? Uh, Kenny Fair was playing really well. He had a little sweet spot. He played well for a couple of years in there, and he was playing the last grip of the U.S. Open, but. Uh, yeah, he didn't have a good day that day, I don't think, did he? No, he, the, the crazy thing was he, he hit a wedge shot on 11 or something. And he was, like, slamming his club, and he was plus seven at oh, the really? time. It's like, dude, you're you're in it. <laughs> you're in it. You're in you it. Know? Come, and he's, like, melting down, you know? And you're just like, but, he had, you know, it's just, like, one of those things where he probably felt like he was shooting a million, you know, well, it's funny. so out of it but, because. Yeah, that's the best advice I got. I got, um. Judy Rankin is, while well, my my wife's sister married Judy Rankin's son, so okay. Judy Rankin is my wife's my sister in law's mother in law. There you go. So anyway, so Judy is close. I've been close with Judy for a long time, and Thanksgiving dinners and stuff. Judy's there, but anyway, I get a note on Sunday morning, or a text from Judy on Sunday morning saying, and I'm two behind playing in the second last group. She goes, never be. Everyone always opens a newspaper on Monday morning and they're surprised about how high the score was that won the US Open. Never think you're out of it today. You never know what's going to win. And that was exactly to your point with Kenneth Ferry. It's say That's the thing. However bad it's going in the US Open, you've, it's always higher the score that wins than you think. So you, you view it like that. You know, it was really good advice. You know, just wait, wait for everyone to go away as opposed to kind of panic and force it. This is good advice. Yeah. It's good advice for almost everything. Yeah. Yeah. In life. US Open's especially though, <laughs> yeah, because you're two over after two on Thursday and you're like calling a travel agent, right? But everybody's two over after you know, it's like it's just part of it. You just ten over could win the tournament, so just hang in there, you know. All right. Well, hey, thank you for coming on. Excited to uh hear your thoughts uh after and uh Look forward to uh, another, hopefully as dramatic of one as uh, 06. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. I mean, it'd be brilliant if we could get like, five or six guys with a chance with an hour to play. It'd be great. I mean, if it's a procession, that's fun to watch too, right? If a guy wins by five. But any lead, it's not going to be safe. You know, like you said, if a guy posts six over and you're three over on the 15th tee, they haven't, they're not giving you the tournament yet, you know? So yeah. it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah.